we may, with our hearts and our minds, even with our bodies, Lord, that we might enter into this great story of our salvation, this great story of your glorification. Would you enable us to do that by your Holy Spirit, the preaching of your word, the taking of your sacraments. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have been going through Holy Week, this incredibly important week in the life of Christ, in the life of uh, our salvation. And we come to Thursday evening, and there is a lot that happens on Thursday evening. And we have in John's Gospel, uh, beginning in 13, the wonderful Uh, mysterious, peculiar in some ways, depiction of the foot washing, which we will get to enter into and reenact tonight. Then it goes on from there in 14, 15, and 16, and 17. And for my money, it's some of the best um, of Jesus's words in all the New Testament as he uh, takes on these powerful analogies of the vine and the branches. We also have in the other gospel accounts, the institution of the Lord's Supper of Holy Communion that which has nourished and sustained the church um, since Jesus gave it to us. And so we get to remember how he gave that to us, and we also get to participate in that again this evening. But I want to actually reflect now on something that happened after dinner, after they had left the upper room. In Matthew chapter 26, and that's where we're going to be if you have your Bibles and you'd like to follow along, In Matthew 26, uh, we're told that they sang a hymn and then they went out to the place called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Jesus instructs most of his disciples to stay put while he goes to a different part of the garden to pray. But he brings with him what we sometimes consider his three favorite disciples, certainly the three closest to him, Peter, James, and John. They get to see Jesus in one of his most vulnerable states. A little later in the chapter, in verse 38, Jesus asked these three closest companions to remain there and to watch with me. It's a tender moment. The manual, God with us, asking this friends of him to, to be with him. And of course, we know that they don't do a very good job at it. They fall asleep repeatedly. And then in the real moment of need, when he's about to be arrested, they flee. And Peter later on denies him. The word Gethsemane actually tells a little bit of what's happening that evening and what was going on with our Lord. It means oil press. It was probably an area within this olive grove, perhaps walled off, um, where there were some olive presses that they used to crush the olives and make the oil. It is a fitting description for what Jesus is experiencing. Matthew will tell us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. The Greek words are actually a lot more colorful and intense. He is in deep anguish. His soul is in the worst kind of emotional and psychological pain that we can imagine. The words depression and anxiety don't even really begin to describe the depth of emotion that Jesus was going through. 
He then actually says that to Peter, James, and John. He says that his soul is very sorrowful, even to death. And he uses, Matthew uses another word um, that means literally to be surrounded by sorrow, to be hemmed in. What's causing all of this for Jesus? What is this horrible weight that has come upon him, that is crushing him like an olive? He's aware of the excruciating torture that he will face the next day. He knows, of course, that he is going to die. He's been telling his disciples it's going to happen. But the physical suffering is not the primary source of the pain in his soul. There is something else. After asking his friends to watch with him, Jesus goes by himself a little further and he falls on his face and he cries out to God. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Whatever was in this cup was causing Jesus anguish. And if it wasn't just his physical suffering, then what was in the cup? What did it symbolize? It's actually a very common metaphor in the Old Testament and the New. And when it is used, it points um, often to God's wrath and God's judgment against sin. So Jeremiah 25 verse 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And then from the New Testament, Revelation chapter 14, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of His anger. This cup which Jesus had to drink, which was causing this deep anguish in His soul, was the judgment that He would endure for the sins of the world. That was the crushing pressure. But in order to do that, to to take on the judgment and, and the weight of God's wrath, to drink that cup down, he had to identify with something that was totally foreign to him, repulsive even, which was sin. Apostle Paul puts it like this in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. To be sin. What does that mean? If we really stop and we we take that in, there is mystery in those words, kind of a disturbing mystery. How the light of the world could become cloaked in darkness. How the pure Holy One, the Son of God, could be made sin. We don't know exactly how that all transpired. But what I think we can deduce is that it's beginning to take place in the garden. And it's a horrible process for our Lord. We can just imagine every sin from the smallest little white lie to the greatest act of genocide. Every transgression, past, present, future. Every act of human evil, like a spear, is coming to focus in this one man's soul. In the words of John Stott, Jesus was experiencing the spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world and of bearing the divine judgment that those sins deserve. Jesus knew he had to drink this cup. He knew that this was the plan that he and his Father and the Spirit had agreed upon from the foundation of the world. Now that he'd come to the moment, 
was almost more than he could bear. And so he's crying out as a son to his father, is there another way? Is there some other possible way that this could happen? I don't think he's afraid of the physical suffering. I think the emotional, soul, spiritual torment was breaking our Lord down. And it's one of the most human pictures we have in all the New Testament of Jesus, wrestling with God's will, asking for some other way. Well, what is heaven's answer in Gethsemane? What does the Father say to this desperate, in some ways, petition and plea of His Son? Nothing. Nothing. Heaven is silent. There is no answer. At least we don't have one recorded in the Gospels. I think it's interesting that the Father doesn't say anything because He had said some things before. And we have that in Matthew's Gospel. At Jesus' baptism, powerful words, powerful moment. The skies torn open. The Holy Spirit descends on Him like a dove. And then the voice. The voice that Jesus needed to hear. The voice that the world needed to hear. This, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And then again, a little bit more private setting with the same three disciples. Interesting, Peter, James, and John on the mountain of transfiguration. Jesus' appearance changes. He's showing forth His glory. His clothes are dazzling white. And again, the voice of the Father. This, this is my beloved Son. Whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. But now at this critical moment. On the eve of his crucifixion. In this moment of total agony. There is no voice from heaven. No skies being torn open. No miracle of deliverance. And his his one comfort we might think is these disciples that he brought with them. And they had fallen asleep. Our Lord is alone in facing this suffering. It feels Have you ever prayed to the heavens and heard nothing back? Have you ever asked God to heal a sick child, to restore a broken marriage, to intervene in some moment of anguish that you, a loved one, that the world is experiencing? And it seems that there's not an answer, that our prayers are falling on deaf ears. Are you there, God? I need you. Those are some of the most honest types of prayers. And yet I think a very human experience is to feel that silence, to not feel a miraculous intervention or answer from God. I love the way the musical artist Andrew Peterson describes this in a song he wrote. He says, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It'll break a man's faith. It's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. From what we read in the gospel, Jesus received no answer from heaven. But I think he already knew the answer. And perhaps the silence of God was just reinforcing that. Is there another way, Father? No. No, there was no other way. And in his prayer, we see Jesus painfully but faithfully submit to his Father's will. 
He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. He goes on to pray that two more times, but the wording changes a little bit. The second and the third time he prays, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Do you recognize those words? What if I say like this, Thy will be done. It's the same words, Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. He's practicing what he preaches. Your kingdom come, your will be done. I know it's a pretty heavy thing to to think about Gethsemane like this, but I I do want to leave us in hope because there is hope in this scene, just this scene alone. Without fast-forwarding, we know where the story goes, but just to stay in this particular moment in the narrative, there is hope. But it's not in the thundering voice from heaven. And it's not in a miraculous deliverance from legions of angels. Our hope is this, that Jesus is not like the old Adam. And he's not like the old Israel. And he's not like me. And he's not like you. Instead, he is a man, fully a man, who in the deepest personal anguish and pain, far beyond anything that we could imagine, submits to his Father's will and does so freely. It's important that we note that he does so freely. He wrestles, but then he bends his knee to the Father's will. Why? Because he loves his father. And because he loves us. His act of submission, of being the new Adam, the new Israel, the new man, leads to our salvation. Our passage concludes with Jesus no longer wavering, no longer wrestling, but full of resolve. He's had the moment, he's submitted. He is now one with the Father's will, and he rises to meet his fate. And I love the picture, I mean, almost just the the picture of movement that we get. Judas, the soldiers, they come into the garden. Jesus could have moved forward. He could have fought. One of his disciples was doing that with the sword. No, that's not the way. That's not the way this is going to happen. He also could have fled back over the Mount of Olives, back into the desert, back into Galilee where it's safe. But he does neither. He stands He allows himself to be arrested. He is going to drink this cup. He is going to lay down his life on this cross. Let us pray. Father, what can we say as we marvel at this scene? But thank you, Lord, for being a different kind of man that submits perfectly to the will of the Father, that we might know a new humanity, a new salvation, a new relationship with you. We pray that you would put in us the same spirit that was in him, that we might live submitted to the loving lordship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in that name we pray. Amen.